So, we've officially begun the Christmas season. The, uh, the turkey has been carved and eaten. It's been repurposed probably multiple times as it is in my house. I'm sure it is in yours from, uh, from the beautiful bird that sat on our table to stews and salads and sandwiches and pot pies and maybe little sliders. We're at the slider point in our family, <laughs> our casseroles. Your family came they ate, and maybe as they drove away, you thanked God that they were leaving. <laughs> and now, the countdown has officially begun. Unless you turned on the news, and you might be wondering if the countdown will ever begin, or will your Christmas be sitting on a cargo ship in the middle of the ocean on December 26th and 7th and 8th? It feels like for the past few years, this has been the same kind of story. Of course, you open up the news and a virus or a variant threatens everything. It feels like Christmas has become more about a disruption and counting down to or from a particular disruption than it is about what we expect it to be about, what we want it to be about. Of course, about Jesus, but Christmas for goodness sakes, it's supposed to be about peace and joy and celebration. And how can any of that happen if everything is so unstable? Can we just say that out loud? It just feels like the world is in such a shaky place and it feels like, and not to place too much uh, on emotions, but it feels like that threatens, if nothing else, the meaning of the season and the celebration of the season. So as we as a staff were talking about what this Christmas series would be about, because this is a special part, of course, our church calendar as we open up the scripture and tell the, uh, the age-old stories again about the birth of Jesus with one concentration or another, one theme or another. And look, if, 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 you've, been, if you've been going to church for a while, you know that they're the same stories kind of with different slants, and after a while you might be thinking, man, how many different creative ways can we look at the Christmas story? But as we're looking at the events that are going on in our world, we could just kind of pretend those away, get lost in, in the old, old story and uh, smile our way into Jesus's life and the good old days and all of those kinds of things. But we as a staff, we talked really honestly about the instability that was going, is going on in our world and uh, decided that we're going to, rather than lean away from it, we're going to lean into it. And uh, when everything feels so unstable, we believe, and if you read the Christmas story and if you're familiar with it, what we're going to find is that there is offered to us in a relationship with Jesus something unshakable, an unshakable peace, an unshakable hope, an unshakable joy, all of the core things about the Christmas story and the core things that we seek and want and yearn for and chase after and the things that the news stories and, uh, and the political environment and the, uh, the medical environment seem to threaten against. How can you have those things? And yet, 
God offers us a spirit, a life. We find in Jesus' the, the last thing he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 is a life that is unshakable. That almost feels though a little bit like tongue in cheek. Like Hallmark and Hollywood have told that story with the Clark Griswolds awkwardly leading their family through with the kind of a funny little weird grin on, on his face and them really with the sense of disbelief on theirs, being dragged fakely through a holiday season or through life. Well, we don't want that for you. And that's not what God offers. He's not asking you to grin and bear it or pretend our troubles may be your troubles away. The idea of unshakable peace, joy, hope, and love is one that's insulated or those things being insulated from either the highs or the lows or whatever else is going on. That our peace in today's case, that our peace would be tethered to or founded on something, someone, that is stable and unchanging. So the whole idea of the Christmas season is about us recognizing, realizing, and opening ourselves up to the presence of Jesus in our lives, to that totally stable, non-shifting presence of God. And in a sense, you would say that true peace comes, and we'd say this first of all, true peace comes from Jesus Christ and his presence in our lives. That's a universal truth. We'd say that as Christians. You can't have peace without Jesus. No peace, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace, right? If you don't know Jesus this morning, we do, we, please don't leave this sanctuary without talking to me or uh, the person next to you and asking, how can I know Jesus as, as my Savior? Don't let this season pass. Don't let today pass without coming into a relationship with Jesus. You can have him today. But on the other side of it, there is a sense in which Without peace, you won't be open to God's presence, His work, and His invitation to an encounter in your life. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing. You can't have peace without a relationship with Jesus. But so many of us who began a relationship with Jesus months or years or what might seem like a lifetime ago, miss out on the continual encounters that God desires and designs to have with us because we don't have room in our life or our hope for those encounters. We're, we're so captivated and captured on the little anxieties that we have in our lives. And we can't lift our heads up and see that God wants to enter, he wants to encounter, he wants to work, he wants to invite, and he wants us to be in a continual, life-changing relationship with him. That literally is the story of Christmas. 
You look at the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, is where most of our attention for the next few weeks is going to be centered. Like to us, probably whether you've been going to church for a long time or, or this is kind of a new experience for you, we're basically familiar, and I don't think it's too much to say, we're basically familiar with the Christmas story. Even if we haven't read it, we've seen it in somebody's lawn at Christmas time. <laughs> You, 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 we, we know the Christmas story. It might feel, once again, like, like how many times can we tell the same story again and again? Well, if you think you're familiar with the Christmas story, the people that experienced it back in the day when Jesus came were really familiar with it. I mean, this thing had been talked about since the beginning of time. So the first three, the third page in your Bible, the third chapter in the book of Genesis opens up like the beginning of the Christmas story that someday this Jesus is going to come. doesn't name him as Jesus, but someday God is going to enter into this world and he's going to fix everything. And again and again, through stories and images and visions and prophecies, the Christmas story unfolds through the Old Testament, like thousands of years. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew makes a, a study of the prophecies in the Old Testament and their fulfillment, page after page. It was written uh, hundreds of years ago, a thousand years ago. It was written, and what Matthew does is give the meticulous details that hundreds and a thousand years prior described the life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and then shows how they were fulfilled. If you're a skeptic and you kind of struggle with believing in God, lean into that. Right? Take the, you might do that for your Advent season. Just read the Gospel of Matthew and let him convince you through the evidence, if you will, through the fulfillment of those prophecies that this Jesus was and is the Son of God and did come into this world. The truth is, though, when you look at the story of the birth of Jesus, there's not a lot of teaching there. In the sense of, if you go in the later part of the New Testament, you'll find in the letters kind of step one and step two and step three. But in the Gospels, here in the story of the birth of Jesus, there's no real formula for how to have peace and joy and love. There's not, a kind of, there's not a process, a step one, a step two, or a step three, in how I can put these things to work in my life. Instead, you just have a story. Just a story. With the characters and a plot, but a lot of characters. And what those characters offer... I think is one of the most brilliant, uh, almost sideways way of revealing what Jesus can do for our lives. Those characters, multiplied, offer a contrast into the lives of some who would receive Jesus and others who would miss him. What I mean by contrast is, We'll see in the characters, particularly today, how a life is set up to receive Jesus into, to be welcomed into, to be excited for, to receive Jesus, 
And on the other side of that contrast, the life of one who would miss him or reject him altogether. And the invitation for us is this, to lay that over our life and ask ourselves a question. Are we set up for to receive him or reject him? And, and, and ask the question, how, how can I be open to the presence of God as he enters into my life, hopefully in this Christmas season and thereafter? So our attention will be uh, turned to the most unlikely, and if, if you can imagine, the two most different characters in the Christmas story. So one of those characters seems to be set up for peace, seems to be the, the perfect person for Jesus to come to, for God to choose to reveal himself to, and the other seems like there is no way God is going to enter into this person's life. Why would he choose this one over the other? We're going to talk about Herod and Mary, kind of rags to riches in the Christmas story. So we'll begin with a reading in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 38. In the sixth month, he says, in the gospel of Luke, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of, uh, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what the sort of greeting this might be. Little did she know that this was going to be a complicated thing. In verse 30, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and, the, uh, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You could probably imagine that somewhere in that diatribe of what Jesus is going to be, she's got a big, uh, what? Hanging in the back of her mind. You're going to do what? I'm going to do what? In verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, exactly that, uh, excuse me, like I need some details. How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, <laughs> answered her, and the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, here's proof, has also conceived a, a son. And this, is, uh, and this is the sixth month with her who was, called, who was called barren. So she couldn't have a baby. Now she's having a baby. Look, I can do great things, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold... I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. I think it would be helpful for us to have a little bit of uh, a, a bio background for Mary. At this point, when the, when the angel promises all this, the Holy Spirit's going to make her pregnant, 
she's between 12 and 16 years old. And uh, she's married, not married yet. And this is not, by the way, I didn't back up. Caught some of your faces. This is not a scandal in their day. This was common for, for both males and females in their mid-teens, maybe tweens would be uh, a, little bit, a little bit much for us to handle. But in that age range for them to, to, to be married. Okay, so that part's not, not a scandal. But she, in this, in this event, when the angel promises this, all this is going to happen, she's married but not married. Not Mary, she's always Mary. But married but not married. So for them, the betrothal, the betrothal process was one where uh, the, the dowry was, was paid, the contract was signed, but they haven't been on their honeymoon quite yet. They haven't been physically involved. So imagine the complication that's going on in her mind, the reality of her situation. It's not like with us where uh, you might date for a couple of months or a couple of years, depending on how brave you are, and then you get engaged, and you're engaged for a couple of months or a couple of years, at which time or during which time, hey, look, if you change your mind, it's going to hurt some feelings, but we don't need to get lawyers involved. It's not a divorce process. With Mary, though, the contract had been signed. They were officially married, but because of their culture, they hadn't been physically involved. They hadn't been on their honeymoon. If she shows up pregnant now, think about her reality. This is exactly what Joseph had in mind. He intended, because he was a nice guy, to divorce her quietly and put her away. But if she showed up pregnant now, this would be a sign of betrayal. She'd been with somebody else and hadn't even been with me. And shame that would follow her for the rest of her life. Now Joseph takes her and marries her and everything carries on between them, the great relationship, all that kind of stuff. But people would do the math. Sweet little Mary... When she goes back, I guess we can't really say she'd go back to her high school reunion. It'd be a junior high reunion, right? Middle school reunion. When she'd go back to her middle school reunion and hang out with her buddies, sweet little Mary wouldn't be sweet little Mary anymore. Mary's got a past. She's got a story. She's got a little tattoo right there, right? What she was being brought into was challenging. It was scandalous. It was problematic. It was disruptive. But she's calm, cool, and collected. Our other character this morning had a very different response to the coming of Jesus. But if we could just summarize Mary's response, she was cool about this. I mean, she had some questions. Okay, so I'm the servant of the Lord. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm your humble ser servant, but can I ask, you know, just one thing? <laughs> and then the angel totally doesn't clear things up. And then she sings a song that we'll focus on in just a little while. She doesn't hum a song. Not like my mom when she was nervous or anxious about something and made us all anxious by the offbeat tune that she was humming around while she was vacuuming or whatever. Now Mary is, is at total peace despite what's going on, or at total peace with what God is about to draw her into. I want that to captivate us. I want you to be drawn into that. 
The question should hang in the air. How can I have that kind of peace? How can I invite God to disrupt my life? Or how can I invite God to walk with me through a disrupted life and have peace no matter what? So that's Mary. Herod, on the other hand, you have to go to another gospel in order to get his story in Matthew chapter 2. Verses 7 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. So it talks about the wise men in verse 7, uh, who had come from a long way off. We find earlier in the story, they had traveled about a thousand miles. They were astronomers, not astrologers. They were looking at the stars, though, to determine the great events that were going to happen in the world, had located this peculiarity that uh, as they researched, they found that this had something to do with the Jewish scriptures and that a a great event was going to happen. So they traveled in order to be a part of this thing, to document it, to tell the history or the future of. And when they showed up in the area, they started asking around. Herod, the king, heard that, that these guys were asking around and that there was some story about their presence. And in verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly, key in on that, secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent, to, uh, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for this child, the child Jesus. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. I feel like even though it doesn't say it, that there's some tongue-in-cheek there. We find out later that uh, the, the furrow on Herod's brow wasn't because he had a fly in his hair. Yeah, he said, I'm going to come worship him too. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was born, the stable area. When they saw the star, they rejoiced greatly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they gave him the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And we find out a few verses later that the reason why they were warned not to return was because Herod was not what he was Uh, presenting himself as he goes on a murderous rampage looking for this baby Jesus, looking for this child, uh, and he kills a bunch of other kids hoping that uh, by some luck of the lottery that Jesus would be one of those children. The oddest thing, when you look at at Mary and her life circumstances and her age and, and her economic level, she seems to be the least likely person to receive Jesus and even to react the way she reacted. But Herod's entire life said that he should have had complete security in his circumstances. After all, he'd been climbing the ladder all the way to the top and his station should have offered him the peace and stability that he had hoped for. He was known for uh, building one of the greatest palaces, and he was in the process of rebuilding Solomon's temple, which is kind of to say that he was some sort of a 
not a re- necessarily overly religious, but you know, he kind of gave a wink, wink, nod, nod to, uh, uh, to, to the whole God thing. He had everything. And for all practical purposes, should have had complete security and complete peace. But one little thing. Here's about one little baby. And it completely throws him off kilter. This should highlight for us where peace doesn't come from. Where that kind of stability can't come from. Positions and possessions. We could literally chase after those kinds of things our entire life and never achieve the peace and security that we long for. Mary, on the other hand, had no reason for peace. She kind of blows up the excuse that peace is uh, some future kind of event. As soon as I get to this age, or as soon as I have these kinds of possessions, it's always kind of an if-then equation. Herod had lived most of his life at this point. Mary was just beginning. What she says to us is that peace is something you can have now. Peace is something that's offered outside of our circumstances, despite of what's going on around us. And it's not something that if, if you're sitting here today and, and you don't have that kind of security in your life, what Mary says, sweet little Mary, says that you can have that peace now. I love it that she's a kid too. And this is so, so biblical. Here she is, 12 to 16 years old, doing this heroic thing, having this mighty faith. So you look back at, the, at King David. Well, King David, before he was King David, was tween David. Steps out on the battlefield and slays a, a, a giant. Go later on in the story, little Josiah is not quite a teen yet, and there he leads God's people back to Scripture, uncovers the Bible, and sets God in his rightful place in the middle of God's people. Like If you're a young person today, what Mary invites you to is the same that he invites if you're 80 years old sitting in this audience today. God can give you great things and is inviting you to participate in history. God wants to be close to you. No matter what age you are, great things, great things can happen. But the question that hangs in the air is, for Herod, he didn't have that security. Mary did. What did she have that he didn't have? What did she have that, I, that, that if I had, I would have her same kind of peace and security? I think the key to understanding what she believed and what she possessed is found in her song in verses, Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 55. So Mary sings, or she says, My soul, Luke chapter 1, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
For he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud with the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty with their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Look over that again. What's the running theme through her song? She begins with, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So she sets... The, the theme for the rest of the passage. And then it is he and his and the Lord and God. God is the center of everything for this young woman. In her mind, and I love the way it begins, my soul what? Magnifies the Lord. And that's not magnifies as in make something that's small seem bigger. That's magnifies in the sense of taking something magnanimous and bringing it closer to study, to see, to appreciate. This is a telescope, not a microscope. A telescope looking out at the huge planets and bringing them close enough for me to appreciate and, and study. My soul magnifies the Lord. God is huge. He's the biggest ever. My soul rejoices in the Lord. And then from there, her future belongs to the Lord. Now, because of what God's doing, I'm going to be blessed for generations to generation. Her problems are solved in the Lord. Whether I'm poor or rich, God is the center of everything. And by the time she ends, this isn't just about little Mary. This is about all the nation of Israel. Everybody can have the bigness of God overtake their lives. In a word, though, what's Mary's secret? God is the center of everything. And here's the theme for this morning. Your, your center determines your stability. Whether a thing or a person or a life, whatever it is, the center determines your stability. So when I was a kid, I loved to ride my BMX bike. One of my favorite things in the world, and every other Christmas, my parents would get me a new bike. And a few months after they'd get me the bike, I would punish it to the point that I needed another one, but I had to wait for every other Christmas because I literally could have bought a new BMX bike every few months because of what I put it through. Movies could be made about the ramps that we built and the heights that we climbed and the depths that we descended, so much so that when I rode down the street, people would giggle because my tire wobbled like crazy. And I believed, whether it was months or longer before my tire started wobbling, that the reason... I was so uncomfortable riding my bike was because my bike was broken. And obviously, that made sense because, you know, 50 feet in the air and landing and everything that had happened with this thing. 
I also, if you're going to ask me, say, well, maybe the, but the rest of the bike looks okay. My wheels just must be broken. Till later on, as a young adult and then an adult, I'm on my mountain bike, and I'd punish it a little bit and take it to the bike shop, and the bike, do you call them mechanics? The bike guy. Turns my bike over, and I said, oh, look, I think the bike's broken. I'm pretty sure the tires, at least, are broken. He turns the thing over, spins it, and, of course, the wheel's wobbling like crazy, and he says, no, 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 your, your wheel's not broken. It just needs to be adjusted. Then what do you mean by adjust? He said, well, the process is called truing. And the idea behind truing is everything on the bike connects to the center. And if anything is not lined, if any of your spokes aren't lined up correctly with the center, everything else is affected. Your wheel will be off balance, and you're going to shake going down the road, and you're not going to get very far, and you're not going to get very far very comfortably. And there I was believing that I just needed a new bike. When all the while, well, there was a life lesson in there, that anything out of line with the center can affect everything else. I want you to get this. This isn't, we're not talking about legalism here, that God demands total obedience, and if not, he's going to come and punish you. But the principle is this. We can spend time in this sanctuary worshiping God, declaring his name, saying, God, you're amazing, I magnify you. And leave here and have parts of our life that aren't in line with him that don't welcome his presence, where God is not the center of whatever that might be. That that could be uh, your workplace. That could be uh, relationships or your finances, any number of things. Where God is not the center, that thing is out of line with God. And you find yourself, well, wobbly. Lacking peace in an unrelated area. I find I just have a general lack of, of peace. And God would say, something's out of line. Can we say that? If God is offering peace to us, if his presence here on this earth and offering that to us, this is, I'm going to give you your name it, claim it, that God is offering you total peace. And if you don't have peace, something's out of line. Now, before you go judging yourself, this isn't a judgy, judgy thing. The grace in a lack of peace, when you diagnose that, when you realize, okay, God has promised me peace, I don't have peace. His presence should give me peace. Goodness gracious, this little girl had peace, right? But I don't have it. The grace in that is, God says, okay, now let's, let's go on a journey together. Let's diagnose What is out of line with me so that you can have total peace? So how do you do that? So we've got the wobble on the bike. How do you discover what might be out of line 
with God? Well, the first thing I would say, if we go back to the tires, go back to the wheel, is I would look at your tires, right? As you look at your tires, you might see in areas of your life that there's abnormal wear. In your uh, uh, cave road table fire exercise, the page that you'll take home with you and walk with the Lord over this next week, one of the questions that I wrote in there is, when's the last time you just totally lost it? I mean, in an unhealthy way, whether that's in a relationship or a situation, where is it that you just totally lost your cool or, or lost your everything? And name not only that thing, but that place. Where there's where, here's your principle, where there's where, there's a wobble. Right? And that place where we lack peace is the place where God wants to do his greatest work. Where there's where, there's wobble. I think that's easy enough for us to remember. But that still doesn't get us to the heart of the matter. That a lack of peace in an area of my life may not mean that that area of my life is necessarily the problem or is out of line with God. So how do I arrive at the actual diagnosis? What is it that's out of line? What is it that's off-center? Where does God need to apply his work? Again, at the risk of diluting the tire illustration, which, by the way, I didn't have a tire in first uh, service, I, I went and stole a tire in between. And I meant to bring my, uh, my uh, mountain bike tire from the house, but part of the reason I didn't is that I haven't ridden it in how many years? Like 10 years, maybe? I, I've dragged it from house to house, but it's kind of a relic at, at this point. Anyway, there was a bike that was tied up. It might be one of your bikes uh, on, a ch- on a chain up on the hill, so See me after if you would like your wheel back, because I'm not sure I can get it back on for you. At the risk, though, of diluting the illustration, I'm going to turn to another illustration, something that you're probably familiar with, and you may have played this game this week. Jenga. Jenga? Jenga. Jenga? It's Jenga? Are you just saying that with an accent, or is that... Do you spell it with an E or an A? Well, let's, let's talk after. So the game Jenga. If you're looking at areas of your life that might be out of line with God and you're not sure exactly what it might be, pull something out. Actually, if you look and see if that thing is causing such a great disruption, I, I, that part, that thing might not be in line with God. Or I might have made that thing my center, which no wonder with anything other than God as the center of my life, no wonder I lack peace. So finances weren't meant to be the center. Revelation here, your children weren't meant to be the center. Your marriage wasn't meant to be the center, no matter what he or she might tell you. Nothing in your life is meant to be the center. That doesn't mean that nothing in your life matters, but nothing in your life matters as much as the bigness, the magnification, the amazingness of God. Okay? So pull something out. That actually is the one of the main purposes of the Christian practice or the practice of fasting. It's a conscious 
intentional exercise in which, one, we communicate to our spirit that nothing is more important than God. And so if you're fasting from food, you say what Jesus says, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's nothing more important than God. Even food, even uh, hobbies, any activity, any person, anything. We can fast from food, we can fast from talking, which some of us probably need to do from time to time. And here I am as a preacher, probably need to fast from talking from time to time. But the idea of fasting is pulling stuff out in order to communicate to our spirit or maybe identify to our spirits or in our spirits that something is out of line with God or has taken too much of a central role with us. But you can do this with an inventory through your life. Kind of look through and say, okay, let's just say, as Mary prays, my soul magnifies the Lord. Is there anything in my life that's, that's magnified beyond the Lord? Am I focusing too much attention on any one thing or things? And truly, am I magnifying God in my life? Is he bigger, and not to be cliche, but is he bigger than everything else? Is he more important than everything else? Thirdly, listen to your prayers. And if you don't pray, start praying and listen to your prayers. Take an inventory, journal those out. List out the concentration of your prayers and ask yourself the question, are your prayers like Mary's prayers? She begins by magnifying God and rejoicing in Him. She ends with, I want God to do great things amongst all the people. I want everybody to experience what I'm experiencing. Okay? What are are your prayers like? Are are, Are they about the bigness of God or are they about the details of your life? Are they about your problems, issues, and anxieties? And I know what you're thinking. I'm supposed to bring those to the Lord, right? I mean, God tells me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I think we missed the second part, though. The rest, to cast your anxieties on the Lord. He's faithful to receive those, to remove those from you. I I think that we misinterpret the idea of casting our anxieties on the Lord with dwelling in the presence of God for whatever minute or hour we're with Him, droning on and on about our anxieties. God cares, okay? He, He cares about your unrest, but he invites and longs, desires, and demands that we let go. I mean, everybody comes to the, like, if you come into the presence of God and bring your anxieties to him, you shouldn't leave with them. Can I hear amen? And if God is as magnanimous and amazing and capable and caring as we say that he is, as we sing that he is, as we pray that he is, then as I cast, some of our casting just doesn't look, wouldn't, wouldn't catch many fish, right? If he is who he says he is and we believe he is, 
then very early on, the shift should be from my anxieties, from my unrest to his greatness. Once again, can I hear amen? It, sh it should be. As you look at your tires, you might identify that there's where, where there's where, there's what? Where there's where, there's wobble. If you take something out, does that make everything else unstable? And if so, you have something at the center that's not meant to be at the center because only God can bring stability. Only Jesus, his presence, and anything else might be a distraction from him and his greatness. And listen to your prayers. Take an inventory. Because if you're focused more on your stuff or on your situations than you are on the greatness of God, no wonder you have wear and wobble. No wonder you have freak and frenzy because only God can bring you peace. And the promise at the beginning, what I told you at the beginning of where we were going on this first Advent journey together was that peace comes from Jesus. If you don't know Christ as your Savior today, then there's your wobble. And, and I, no way do I mean to be trite, and in no way am I meaning to call you on the carpet, but there, there it is. The where in your life is natural. That, like, I can't keep myself together, we would say, no wonder. Because Jesus and Jesus alone offers you that peace. Please, we plead with you, don't leave here today without speaking to myself, somebody next to you. If, if, if you're a member of this church and you don't know how to share your faith, with the person sitting next to you who came here hoping that somebody would have an answer for what's ailing their life, please see me also. We want you to know how to share your faith. But not only does Jesus offer us that peace, if, we, if we've been walking with Jesus for any length of time and we don't have peace, then the truth is this, as we're concentrating on all of our anxieties, as we're wobbling down the road, most likely we're so concentrated on what's happening underneath our bike, underneath our tires, that we'll miss the great adventure of an encounter with God. God's calling you to lay your burdens down so you don't miss it. The chicken and egg can't have peace without Jesus. You can't have Jesus in your life continually unless we do as he, as he invites us. Cast your burdens on him. That, I believe, is what communion is about. So here at Grace, we take communion regularly, and we intend to take it every Sunday, but some people forget, and we, we miss some Sundays. But the whole idea of, of communion is a demonstrative uh, illustration or picture of this relationship with Jesus. You'll remember back in the Gospels that Jesus invites his closest disciples 
to sit at the table with him the night before he would uh, be betrayed and, and give his life for us. Then he invited his closest disciples to sit at the table with him. And it's that with that's, that's so remarkable. Because what would happen after that is you would say, I don't want this just for the 12 disciples. I want this with everyone who names me as their Lord. And I want it often. I want, I want to sit at the table. And the, the invitation is this. Jesus is calling you. He's not just commanding and demanding. Jesus is inviting you to join him in this intimate event of communion. And the power is this. If you're looking at your spokes and your tires and your wear and your wobbles, this is the perfect experience for you to lay your burdens down before him. And he's inviting you to do just that. Not just to sip a cup and, and eat a cracker. He's inviting you to take that cup and that cracker and, and process it through your life. To have, the word is, communion with him. And in that communion, for him to take the wobble and offer you peace. If you're walking with Jesus, you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Communion is that experience for you. But once again, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I would say this. During communion, I'm going to be standing by that door. If you don't know Christ as, as your Savior, come and, come and see me. Now is the time for you to receive Jesus. There, if you would, stand on your feet with me. We welcome you in this communion event. We have stations that you can come and, and grab your uh, communion from. And you can, you can kneel at the front. Uh, you can sit at your chair. You can stand around the auditorium. Let's pray. Father, we, we recognize that you are the king of the universe the great I am, the Lord of lords, and that you offer us as your creation, your creatures, the chance to have a, a life-changing relationship with you. And we pray, God, I pray that we would be open to that, that whatever needs to happen, whatever needs to be taken out or put in or shifted around, or trued up in our life that you would you would call us into this intimate experience with you. Would you cause us to be open to your work and to your presence? We thank you for the sacrament of communion that reminds us that Jesus is just as available to us today as he was when he sat at the table and tore pieces off of his bread and gave them to his disciples. Just as real as his body was on the cross that this bread represents that body. Your promise is just as true today as it was then, just as true as the juice to our lips. I pray, God, that as we, as we take communion together, you would do the work adjusting our life and calling us near. We pray in Jesus.
Jesus' name.